Morning, Saints. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 96 with me, please. Psalm 96 will be our text this morning. And as I often try to remind myself and those who hear my voice, I do indeed invite you to hear and receive none other than the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Let us pray. Lord, we have sung songs just as your word commands. And it's our prayer that you would cause our hearts to continue to sing as we consider your word this morning. You and you alone are great, and therefore you are greatly to be praised. So Lord, would you help us to greatly praise you above all else in the preaching and receiving of your word this morning. You who made the heavens are worthy of all glory. Yet we need you to even ascribe the glory that is due your name. When we think rightly of that concept, we have to offer thanksgiving to you, Father. We thank you for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he, the word, became flesh and dwelt among his own who indeed saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Lord Jesus, although we have not seen you, we believe in you and trust you. And it is you who said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. Although we have not seen you, we do indeed believe you. And we will indeed see you. So help us today, this morning, in this hour, to see your glory in your word by your spirit. 
as we consider this psalm. Indeed, you reign and you will reign, Lord, in all the earth. Be worshiped this morning in spirit and truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers, sisters, and friends, what you are invited and commanded to do in the present will be the norm of life in the future. What you are invited and commanded to do here and now will be the norm of life in the future. In the present, we are what? Invited to and commanded to worship the Lord exclusively. In the future, the Lord will be worshiped exclusively. It's that simple, friends. The Lord will be worshiped. And when we think about the certain yet future exclusive worship of our triune God, then what should our response be? We should be compelled to certainly and exclusively worship him rightly in the present. This psalm is both an invitation and a command to worship the Lord. It seems that the setting for Psalm 96 is perhaps the composition of what David said very similarly when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. We remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem. And then in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 8, the Ark is brought into the tent that David pitched for the Ark of the Covenant. They offer sacrifices to the Lord, and then you know what they do next. They have a party, and they sing. Turn with me very quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Chronicles, thank you. All right, all right. So Chronicles is the Old Testament. It recounts what happened back in the day. Corinthians is the new. Thank you. Lord, help me to preach accurately this morning. 1 Chronicles 16. Let's talk about 1 Chronicles 16. Everything that I just said is in the book of Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 through 36, David offers a song of thanks to the Lord. And listen to the striking similarity of verses 23 through 33. This is what David sings. He says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the earth is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. Some would argue that Psalm 96 is written by David himself. Others would argue that maybe a little bit later they remembered this song of David and they added a little bit to it. But nevertheless, the similarity is 
striking. It seems that David, back in 1 Chronicles 16, understood that the ark's entrance into Jerusalem was a picture or a promise of the future coming Messiah to reign over the entire world as king. And that is exactly what Psalm 96 seems to indicate as well. Psalm 96 understands that the Lord is the sovereign ruler. Psalm 96 understands that God is the reigning king. But at the very same time, Psalm 96 also acknowledges a future time when all of creation will submit to the Lord. This psalm is about the reign of the Lord. All people in all places and all elements of nature are to praise, are to praise none other than the triune God of Scripture. Why? Because he is greater than all pagan gods. He is greater than all false gods. He is greater than all idols. And because he does reign, brothers and sisters, you can rest assured that he will reign for all eternity. The main idea of this psalm is that it presents three spheres in which the Lord must be worshipped because he reigns. And I want to emphasize that word, must. Not might, not maybe, not perhaps. Brothers and sisters, the Lord must be worshipped. If God is who he says he is, then he must and will be praised by his creatures and all of creation. That should encourage us, despite the circumstances we might find ourselves in this morning. We get caught up in the mundane lifestyle, doing the same thing over and over and I don't know what's going to happen. You know the future, friends. The Lord will be exalted and all creation will worship him and rightly relate to him. We will rightly relate to ourselves and we will, for the very first time, rightly relate to one another forever and ever and ever. So what we're going to see in this psalm is first, the Lord must be worshipped among all the saved, all the saved people in verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord must be worshipped among all the peoples. We'll get into that in verses 7 through 10. And then finally, the Lord must be worshipped among all creation. So let us begin in this first sphere, verses 1 through 6. The Lord must be worshipped among all the saved. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. The text says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Three times you are commanded to what? Sing, sing, sing. So for those of you who have a hard time singing unto the Lord when we walk through these doors, let this rebuke you and open your mouths and sing unto the Lord because you are commanded to do so. Three times in this text. And then we have three more commands that follow those three commands to sing. We are to bless, we are to tell, and we are to declare. The singing and the blessing are commands that demand the proclamation of praise to the Lord. While the telling and the declaring are commands that demand the proclamation of his praise, to mankind. We are to sing to God and praise him, and we are to tell and declare to mankind 
that the Lord is to be praised. We are to sing to the Lord. Well, what are we to sing? The text says we are to sing a new song. A new song. And a new song suggests that God's people have just experienced or are expecting a fresh outpouring of God's mercy and grace. We see this phrase repeatedly in the psalm six times, as a matter of fact. And Bill Barrick says this about that phrase, singing a new song. He says that it is not a newly composed psalm, but a psalm celebrating a fresh experience of divine action or being struck anew by the amazing glory of God's person and deeds. And if we were to walk through the Old Testament, we can think of a few instances where God's people experienced him in a new or fresh way, way, and they immediately broke into song. Maybe most uh, famously would be the song of Moses when he crosses the Red Sea. We see this in Exodus 15. He breaks into song after the Lord delivers his people. We just saw in 1 Chronicles 16 the song of David after he brought the ark into the covenant. We'll also see this in the future. Revelation chapter 5, the 24 elders, after the Lord Jesus took the scroll from the Father, they sing a new song unto the Lord. God's people often respond to God in new songs when they see his promises come to fruition in the here and now, when they observe his nature on display, and or when they behold his wonderful and magnificent deeds. Saved people sing new songs as they recount and experience the Lord. And this is one of the reasons that verses 1 through 6 tip us off to that, that the psalmist is speaking to those who are saved initially. Saved people sing new songs. But look, even as we say that, the second part of verse 1 says what? Sing to the Lord all the earth. This psalm has a global focus, friends. No less than 10 times does this psalm emphasize the necessity for the world to worship the Lord. As a matter of fact, the psalm is encased in what is called an inclusio, something that uh, brackets the, the main thrust of the text. Look in verse 1, we see what? The earth. Look at the last verse, verse 13. We see again, the earth. The global focus of this worship is overwhelming. All the saved worship the Lord through song. As we do that, saints, we simultaneously invite and command all the inhabitants of the world to do likewise. Worship is fitting for the king of all creation. So therefore, creation must worship. We could put it this way. It is proper for everyone to worship the Lord. And it is improper for anyone not to worship the Lord. And we don't have to be shy about that, friends. We can say it. And we can stand upon the truth of God's word. God is deserving of worship regardless of what people think. That's his word. That's his truth. We don't have to shrink back. So while the redeemed sing a new song, we invite others to join because God invites and commands everyone to sing a new song and to bless, which means to praise his name. But look, continuing on in verse 2, it says, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work or works among the peoples. 
we have to understand, depending on context, salvation can mean one of two things, typically. It can be physical salvation, or it can be spiritual salvation. And in the Old Testament, it often speaks of physical salvation. God saves his people from their physical enemies. But that doesn't mean that all Israel was spiritually saved. And so we think of the book of Judges. We think of uh, Israel being redeemed or being delivered from uh, Egypt. But the word can also mean spiritual salvation. And this is, this is a no-brainer. Only saved people can experience and therefore talk about salvation. Amen? I can't tell of the Lord's salvation unless I've experienced it. So again, we have another command that is focused on those who are saved. Salvation is something that only those who are saved can experience and therefore tell of. The Lord saves, so what's your responsibility? To tell of it. Well, well, when should I tell of it? How often should I tell of it? We just continue on in the passage from day to day. Has this thrust of continually. We are to be speakers of God's salvation wherever our two feet might go. From day to day, continuously, we speak of his salvation. And so I encourage each of us to speak to others about God's glorious nature and the gift we have of salvation. Speak of his wonderful deeds, what he has done in your life, what he has done in scripture. Well, where? If we're to tell of his salvation, if we are to do so often on a continuous basis, where are we to do this? Among the nations, among all the peoples. These are two Hebrew terms that really boil down to this. Every ethnic group in every place upon the earth. Every ethnic group in every place upon the earth. Why do people pack up their lives and go to the jungle to tell people about the Lord? Why do people do that? Because it sounds so glamorous, right? No. Because the Lord over and over in his word declares that must happen. Why do people spend thousands of their hard-earned dollars to support missionaries who are venturing into unreached people groups to preach the gospel and to plant churches? Because, you know, we just like throwing thousands of dollars out there, right? No, it's because ministry costs money, and the Lord is about reaching every tribe and language and people and nation, and so they do so worshipfully to the Lord. We are to tell of his salvation, declare his glory among the nations. Sing a new song, saints. Bless his name, saints. Tell of his salvation, saints. Declare his glory and speak of his marvelous works, saints. Why? Look at verses 4 through 6. Because for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. In short, we are to do the commands, obey the commands, submit to the commands, because the Lord alone is worthy 
He is alone God, and there is no one or no thing that is like him. The Lord is great in nature, therefore he is deserving of great praise. The Lord is great in justice, therefore he is to be feared above all else. The Lord is great alone as the creator, and therefore all other gods, all pagan idols, and all ritualistic images are worthless. Remember what Paul says when there's this question about eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. This is where I was getting Corinthians from. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verses 4 through 6, or listen to me, read them. It says, Therefore, so as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Idols, false gods, they're worthless. Why? Because they're not existent. They don't have any power. I want you to be bold about this, saints. Sometimes I feel like we simply want to be liked and not step on anyone's toes. And yes, we want to become all things to all men. And yes, we want to be winsome. And yes, we want to be uh, merciful and favorable and be patient. But it is hateful for us to pretend as if any other God other than the God of the Bible exists. It is hateful for us, and not worshipful, but blasphemous for us to act just for the sake of conversation as if our God doesn't exist. We speak the truth, we speak it in love, but we don't shrink back. We can simply say, with a smile on our face, with love in our hearts, my friend, your God is worthless. You need to submit to the Lord of the Bible. It says splendor, continuing on in Psalm 96. It says splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And what we have here in this psalm are features of the Lord's intrinsic glory that are presented as being ever presently before him. We could think of it this way, wherever the Lord is, so their splendor and majesty and strength and beauty is as well. And I love that it says, are in his sanctuary. When we think of that term sanctuary, we should be reminded of the fact that the Lord is with his people via his sanctuary. We think of the tabernacle. And then we think of the temple. And then we think of the Lord Jesus Christ who is referred to as the temple because he was God tabernacling among his people. And then we think of ourselves that we as the church are referred to as the temple as well because the spirit of the Lord is in our midst and dwells us. So the Lord is intrinsically beautiful. He's intrinsically glorious. Yet he is also in the midst of his people. Therefore, it can be said that this psalm suggests that the Lord alone is glorious, but he is always and forever among his people. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. And so therefore, 
saved people. You must worship him, and you will worship him. But not only must those who are saved worship the Lord, presently speaking, there's a day when everyone upon the globe will see the Lord as he truly is. The Lord declares that he must be worshipped among all the peoples. And we see this in verses 7 through 10. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 first, please. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. Earlier on, we had sing three times. Notice the command here three times. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And so the question is, what is to be ascribed to the Lord and who is to ascribe it? We look first at what is to be ascribed to the Lord. The text says glory and strength. The glory that is due his name is what is to be ascribed to the Lord. In other, in other words, you are to acknowledge the, the Lord as he truly is, and as you hear sports stars say it this day, and put some respect on his name. I'm tired of people who are successful by the world's standards and then pleading and begging that people would respect me. Look at all the things that I have done. Look at all the accomplishments that I have done. Put some respect on my name. You know what that is? Utter pride. And anyone who constantly and characteristically walks in utter pride can't put the respect that is due the Lord and due alone. It says, look, it simply says, it is due his name. The glory due his name. And so for me to say that the Lord is glorious, do I make him glorious? No, not at all. So theologians, they come up with various terminologies. They talk about the intrinsic glory of the Lord. And we could define it this way, that the Lord's splendorous grandeur, as he truly is, regardless of what anyone or anyone outside of him has to say, is his intrinsic glory. It's this simple. The Lord is glorious whether I say so or think so. He's glorious. That's truth. But then we're told to ascribe glory to the Lord. And this is what's known as the ascribed glory. And this is the acknowledgement to some degree of the Lord's glorious and splendorous grandeur and humbly exalting the Lord in worship by saying the truth about who he truly is. When we ascribe glory to God, we don't make him glorious. We simply say, you are, and therefore we worship you. We simply acknowledge who he is and say, you alone are worthy of respect and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. So we are, as his creatures, to ascribe him glory. But not just those who are saved. Verses 1 through 6 focuses on the saved. Look here. Who is to ascribe glory to the Lord? It specifically tells us, O families of the peoples. In other words, all the families of the earth, all the clans among the nations are to ascribe glory to the Lord. The Lord is king of all, therefore, he must be acknowledged among all peoples. Anyone know of a nation that ascribes glory to the Lord, the glory that is due his name? 
presently speaking. That's, that's good. We're on the same page. <laughs> it's coming, though, saints. It's coming, saints. Forever, for all eternity, the Lord will gather the nations to himself and he will dwell upon this earth and we will give him glory. The verse gives us a picture of preparation for worship. It continues, bring an offering and come into his courts. So we are to ascribe glory to the Lord and then it shows us to prepare, to, to bring an offering and to come into the courts where the offerings would be sacrificed or poured out. And if we're wise, we pause here to consider that word offering. And we think to ourselves, all over the place in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we have this idea of offerings. Many of you, as a matter of fact, brought offerings today to worship and to honor the Lord. And so the question that we ask ourselves as we pause to consider is this, how shall a man, a sinful man, a feeble man, offer something that is acceptable in the sight of the Lord? That's the question that we must ask ourselves. And then we make a beeline to the cross of Christ. We say, of course, it's not I. Of course, it's not anything intrinsic to me. It is because God himself was offered in our stead so that we, along with our offerings, might be accepted through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing to offer apart from the worth that we have in Christ that washes us and cleanses us and allows the Lord to see us as righteous so that we can worship him and through Christ our worship is accepted and perfected. All peoples must worship the Lord and a day is coming when all peoples will worship the Lord. Let's fast forward quickly to Philippians 2 where we see this explicitly. Paul, encouraging the church to have humility, says, have this mind, Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's the result of that? Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be worshipped. Turn a couple pages over to Colossians chapter 1. This text, speaking of the supremacy of Christ, we see this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and I want you to focus once we get there on verse 20. Paul writes, He is the image, Christ, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20 now, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That word, or those two words, all things, are unbelievably important, because what we saw in verses 15 through 18 were all things, all things, all things, and Christ will be placed as the preeminent one over all things. Brothers and sisters, a day is coming when all of creation where all the families of the earth, when all of the saints will be gathered and worship him as we ought. But here now, it's those in Christ. It's those in Christ who can bring our offerings, who are welcomed into the inner courts by the grace of the Lord. Would we be humbled by that reality? And would we worship him as we ought in view of that? If verses 7 and 8 give us a picture, a picture of preparation for worship, then what we have in verses 9 through 10 is a picture of the proper position for worship, the proper heart's position for worship. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. One commentator said this of this verse. Here the psalmist refers figuratively to a solemn and sanctified attitude upon entering the temple service. If we understand that the Lord alone is truly awesome, that word is used way too much. Everything's awesome, right? That dinner was awesome. That game was awesome. That whatever was awesome. No, the Lord is awesome. And when you tell me something's awesome, I'll, I'll give you grace and then we'll continue to talk. But just for the purposes of this sermon, like the Lord alone is awe-inspiring. The Lord is awesome. And so if he is awesome, truly awesome, then it follows that we should prepare ourselves to enter into his presence, does it not? That we shouldn't be up till three in the morning on a Saturday night and, you know, kind of walking in like zombies on Sunday morning. But no, we're going to gather together and we're going to worship the Lord so I want a good night's rest so I can think about the proclamation of God's word so I can sing with every fiber of my being. I want to be prepared to worship the Lord. Notice this, that the inhabitants of the earth are called to tremble before the Lord in light of his holiness. In light of his holiness. When was the last time that you trembled before the Lord in light of his holiness? If you tremble before men, but you don't tremble before the Lord, then perhaps you think too highly of people and too lowly of God. 
we have to acknowledge the Lord as he truly is. Yes, we've been brought near to him through the person and work of Christ, but that doesn't change who he is. That doesn't change his nature. It doesn't change his essence. He is an awesome, holy, righteous God, which would cause us to fear him and tremble before him. Verse 10 says, say among the nations, the Lord, the Lord reigns. And that's this psalm in a nutshell. The Lord reigns. That's the central theme. The Lord is sovereign in heaven and a day is coming when he will reign upon this earth and all nations will serve him. He is sovereign now and he will be seen as sovereign by all in the future. The world is established. It will not be moved, the psalmist says. But you and I respond. Praise the Lord that it will be renewed. Praise the Lord that it will be renewed. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, he will bring justice and equity with total integrity. And this is what Peter alludes to in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, when he simply says this, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Notice the link there. According to his promise, the Lord has verbalized it. He has spoken it. And for Peter, that's good enough is done. Because God said it, we're going to wait for it. We would do well. We would do well to behold the promises of the Lord and humbly wait, knowing that it will come to fruition. The Lord must be worshipped among all the saved and among all the peoples. But the Lord must also be worshipped among all the creation. Look with me lastly at verses 11 through 13. The psalmist says, Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. Now, what the psalmist does is not only call the saved, not only call all people, but he calls upon the totality of creation to rejoice because the Lord will come to judge the, Lord, or the world in righteousness and his people in truth and faithfulness. The personifications of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the field and the trees are expanded by phrases in there that say things such as, and all that fills it or everything in it. What we are reading here in this psalm is nothing less than the reverse of the curse. It's exactly what we're reading. A time will come when creation, all of creation, will flourish under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ from and over the earth. Currently, we don't experience that, do we? Currently, what is our experience? Perhaps the Apostle Paul sums it up best in Romans chapter 8. He says in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Our hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Are you patiently waiting, saints? Do the realities of the fact that the Lord will reign over the earth encourage you, cause you to be more honorable, to more submissive, Wait with great expectation. I love what Paul says here. Eagerly wait. Well, how do you do that? I don't know. I'm still figuring it out too. I'm excited for what's to come. I know it's coming, but sometimes the realities of the world, they beat up on us, do they not? And so what do we do? We said this is what's going to happen, but it's not yet the case. Well, I would argue that we turn to the book of Revelation. And when doubt creeps in, when our soul cries out, how long, O Lord? We remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.13, that according to his promise, we wait. And then we read about what we're waiting for. Revelation chapter 25, 21 John's appearance of the new heaven and the new earth. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payments. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
and just for assurance that there will be righteousness forever and ever and ever. Verse 8 reads, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jump over to chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will, be, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God, for the Lord God, will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved, be encouraged. Be encouraged that the, the Lord speaks and it happens. That if the Lord has, says it, has said it, it will come to pass. The Lord must be and will be perfectly worshipped among the saved, and that's our goal here and now in the present, that our worship of the Lord will be ever-increasing. The Lord must be and will be perfectly worshipped among all peoples in the future. And the Lord must be and will be perfectly worshipped among all creation. You are invited and commanded to worship the Lord in the present knowing that the Lord will be worshipped for all eternity. So my prayer for this congregation is that we would allow the future reality to inform our present worship. That is our prayer, Lord. You have declared it, and so therefore it will come to pass. And I pray that you would help us to remember your word, to store it up in our hearts, to know what is coming. We might not know all the details, Lord, but we can confidently say that we know the future. It's not because we're smart. It's not because we have some special intellect. It's not because we're into sorcery or any weird things like that. It's simply because you have revealed it and preserved it in your word. You have given us faith to believe it, and so I pray that you would help us believe it even more to the extent that the future reality of you reigning upon the earth would be an encouragement and, and help us to worship you in the present now. Lord, as we sing this last song, I pray even in this singing of the last song, we'd be reminded that there is much to sing a new song about that you would lift our voices and that you would lift our hearts to acknowledge you and therefore express your goodness and your greatness in our lives. 
Help us to remember what the Apostle Paul says. That yes, of course, there are present sufferings. Yes, of of course, there are trials and tribulations. But these things aren't even worth comparing in light of the glory that is to be revealed. We are yours, Lord. Help us to express that well by your grace and the power of your spirit. We ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.